0: Hey, it's good to be with you again this morning, and I, I wanted to uh, uh, start first of all. Um, for those of you that don't don't know me, my name is Darren Johnson. I'm the student ministries pastor at Valley Church up in Cupertino. And uh, Dave asked me if I could come down and share with you uh, again this week while he's over in uh, China. Um, so I'm I'm happy to be able to come and to and to fill in for him and to be here with you. I wanted to start uh, by just mentioning something that I wa- I was hoping to mention last uh, two weeks ago when I was here. Um, Uh, which relates to the high school students here at NBC and the high school students at Valley Church. Um, Just to give you a heads up, uh, we are planning on taking a team of uh, high school students from Valley um, over to New Orleans to be involved in um, uh, an evangelistic uh, opportunity in Central City, New Orleans, in June. And... um, and so we were kind of going along and planning this and going through this. And Vivian, um, Vivian had a great conversation with Holly Baker, which is one of our high school high school intern up at the women's retreat, and said, "Hey, we should try to get uh, get uh, high school students from Neighborhood Bible involved in that as well." And so uh, that started uh, just a you know light went on in my head. It's like, "Duh! What a great opportunity!" So um, so Vivian was able to to get the ball rolling with that, and we are excited to be able to offer um some spots and some spaces for high school students from NBC to join us on our trip to uh to New Orleans in June. And so Vivian and I have been working together and talking about this and getting it all squared away. If you've got a, a high school student or a parent of a high school student, you probably received a couple of different emails that have been shooting back and forth um related to the trip. And just wanted to give a little bit of a plug, I guess, this morning for that. If you've got a high school student that's kind of on the fence trying to decide whether or not uh, to come and join us, uh maybe just me being able to say it would be great to have you come and be with us. would just maybe, maybe push that over the edge a little bit and have you come and join us for the trip. So we're looking forward to it. It's going to be a great opportunity. And I just wanted to fill you in on that opportunity that's going on this summer. So uh, once again, it's good to, uh, to be back with you this morning. How many of you have had um, life-changing experiences in your life? <laughs> okay, that's a no-brainer. You know things that have happened that have really changed the way you view life, things that have uh, changed uh, how you reorient your direction, how you're going to move forward in life. Um, I know for myself, I can think of a couple things that happened me, happened to me that shifted uh, the way that i I viewed life and and you could probably make a list of different times and occasions where you've had similar experiences. Um, one was for me when I was in college, I went through a period of depression for the first time, and the experience of going through depression, Um, really opened my eyes to a renewed appreciation for life. Um, I was going through depression, and I won't go into all the details related to it, because we could spend the whole time talking about that. Um, But basically, it's a situation where if you've ever been in depression, you know how depressing it is and how discouraging it is. Because every time that you start to feel better... Uh, it's kind of like uh, saying, close your eyes and don't think about pink elephants. You know, the minute you close your eyes, you start envisioning pink elephants. You know, it's kind of those one of those things with depression. When you try to convince yourself to stop thinking in a certain way, all you can do is continue to think about it. And it continues to perpetuate this negative cycle in our minds. And so when I was going through depression and I would start to feel better, all I could do was think about, well, I'm feeling good, okay, right now, but I'll never get out of this depression because all I have to do is remember certain things about my experiences and what I'm going through right now, and it'll immediately make me depressed again. So it was a very discouraging, hopeless type of environment um, that, I was, that I was going through, and I still deal with depression um, off and on. So it's not something that just kind of has gone away in my life. It's, it's one of those things that I, that I battle with. But one of the things that, that I learned going through this first period of depression was really to, to see that everything that I have, everything that I do, every opportunity that I have in life is a complete gift from God. That was one of the, the observations or one of the life-changing experiences for me. As bad as depression was, um, the, the best part about it was that it renewed my perspective on life. And I came to realize that the the fact that I have the ability to get up in the morning to be able to eat food for energy, the ability to be able to to look at and have sun, you know, have the warmth of the sunshine on me, to be able to have a family, to be able to have a job, to have a roof over my head, I just had a whole new perspective on life, and I just said, boy, God, thank you so much for what you've given me. Um, and 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 uh, it's so easy to get used to, you know, our own situations and the discouraging things that happen in our life, and we we miss the beauty of what God has allowed us to be a part of. And so I gained this new appreciation for life. Um, it was a very life-changing experience for me. Another experience was probably about seven years ago, I was working at a school in Sunnyvale called the King's Academy. Some of you may have heard of it. And it's a, a, a Christian 6th uh, through 12th grade school. And I was working as the spiritual life director at this school and uh, had, a, had a great experience there. And I was really struggling, though, as a spiritual life director. I was kind of seen as the... In some respects, kind of as the youth pastor at the school, kind of helping set some spiritual direction, um, not just in the classrooms, but kind of in the overall campus at large. And so how are we helping guide students towards an authentic spiritual relationship with Jesus? And my real challenge was that I was doing this in a Christian school, so I was trying to grapple with this idea of how do I separate, you know, true authentic faith in Jesus, you know, not, not detach it from academics necessarily, but, but, but to help students see that their faith is not an academic faith, you know that it's not just okay. I went to that class and I got it figured out now. So I was really struggling as as a spiritual life guy at the school to figure out how do I find this balance where I can help students have an authentic relationship with Jesus, knowing that it's not me doing; it's the it's the Holy Spirit that needs to do the work in people's hearts. But how do I provide the right ground or soil or environment for that to occur? Uh, it was a big struggle for me, and I went decided to go up to a youth specialties convention in Sacramento on my second year that I was there. Um, and I took this long seminar on... And the title of the seminar was Postmodern Youth Ministry. And I went to this seminar, and it completely changed my whole world. It, it, it I'd been a product of growing up in a church environment my whole life. And so I'd seen things from a perspective that operated within a certain... Um, mindset of how you do church and how you do ministry that was built around a modern construct. And I won't go into all the details with that. But what I realized in going through this seminar was that my approach to understanding Jesus or, or the, the, the methods or the ways in which to help students and people um, relate the message of Jesus to their life it, it has there's a lot of different opportunities that can be built upon or can be in, in, infused into the way that I had been doing ministry. So it's almost like it said Jesus gave me an opportunity to look and say, you know, you've been doing things in a youth ministry men, mentality in this little box. And, and it helped me realize that, no, that there, there's this huge field in front of me that Jesus wants to open my eyes to and wants to open us up to in the church to help us see how we can move beyond maybe some of the things that have confined us in our churches um, and, and be more proactive in our community and proactive in the spiritual lives of other people. And so this paradigm shifting experience for me changed everything about me and how I view ministry, how I view the local church. It just was a very positive experience for me and where I really felt like my eyes had been opened to uh, the way that God is moving. And um, so these two experiences were just huge for me, completely changed my life in so many different ways. The Apostle Paul um, who wrote this letter to the Colossian church um, that we're going to look at this morning, had a pretty major, major life, uh, life-changing experience as well, didn't he? For some of you that know the story of Paul, uh, he had a very interesting experience. And let's take a look just briefly at what are some of the things that we know about Paul. And um, and I we're going to look at a, at a few different, actually quite a bit of a scripture this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can I'm going to have it on the screen for you, but you can flip... Back and forth the places if you'd like to, however you'd like to approach this would be fine. But we're just going to take a look at what do we know about Paul, the Apostle Paul. First thing we know about Paul was that he was a devout Jew. And look with me at Philippians uh, chapter 3 verses 4 through 6. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised in the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. I mean, this was a guy that was just, if you were to look at the perfect Jew, he was it. I mean, he had it all going for him. He was was the most intelligent. He was the the most zealous for the the Jewish faith. Um, He had everything going for him. He was very devout, very dedicated to um, his religion. Uh, Number two, what do we know about Paul? He was an intense persecutor of the Christian church. Look at Acts chapter eight, verses one through three. In this passage here, um, Stephen, if you if you know some stuff about uh, the book of Acts in Acts chapter seven, Stephen one of, was one of the, the early church martyrs uh, where he was actually stoned and killed. Um, and in uh, this this verse kind of uh, tail ends that experience. And it says here that Saul was there and Saul was Paul's name before he was changed by Jesus. Saul was there giving approval to his death, giving approval to Stephen's death, who had just died. And it says that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, at Jerusalem, and all uh, except the apostle, and all, I'm sorry, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but look at this. But Paul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. He was a person that was feared by the early Christians because he was a very powerful individual and he was, he was hell bent on doing everything that he could to destroy this movement of of God, this movement of Jesus, because he was so zealous as a Jew. This is a false religion that's cropping up. It's a threat to our, 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 our society. It's a threat to the way that we see reality. And so he was an intense persecutor against that. What, What is another thing we know about Paul? Um, number three, he was blinded and confronted by Jesus on a dirt road. Look at Acts chapter nine, verses one through nine. It says, meanwhile, Saul, while still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he found anyone there belonging to the way, the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, you can imagine this happening to you. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. Basically, we could add a little paraphrasing or maybe saying so bright and so brilliant that he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone Saul obviously got up from the ground and when he saw he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus for three days. He was blind and did not eat or drink anything. I mean, he was completely transformed. Uh, And we'll, we'll get back to this in just a minute. Number four, what's the last thing that we know about Paul? Well, there's probably more things we know about him, but the last one we're going to talk about today. Number four is he was commissioned to suffer and take the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. Look at Acts chapter 9, verses nine, or 15 to 16. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man, he's referring to Paul here, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So here's a man who had a major life-changing experience. Talk about a complete 180. I mean, here's a guy who is building his whole life around destroying this church. I mean, not just a local, I mean, destroying the church, the body of Jesus that was now beginning and moving in in, in, in exponential ways in the empire. He has now been changed from being its most greatest um, uh, the person against it to being its greatest asset. The irony of God is pretty amazing here, isn't it? It's almost like Jesus sees this and he says, that guy there, he's very zealous. Boy, I get, that, that kind of individual with my spirit moving and working through him could make some amazing changes and some amazing advancements in the church. And so he just says, well, just let's, let's take care of things here with him. Let's, let's change him from going in the dark, working according to the dark side, I guess you could say, and bring him into the light. Let's put his talents and his abilities to good use, to, to move forward the kingdom of God. And so this morning what we're going to do is look at Colossians 1, verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. And here Paul, in a little different passage here, I know Adam Miller was here last week and talking about the supremacy of Jesus, and I listened to his message online a little bit. And this is going to be a little different approach this week because Paul is talking about himself a bit more here. Um, he's not doing so much of, of an admonition and teaching, so to speak, as, as the previous you know, experiences have been in Colossians in the first chapter. But, uh, but a little bit more of sharing his heart and his goals. And, and we're going to glean some, I think, some interesting insights from this this morning. So. Let's let's once again read through Colossians uh, chapter one verses twenty four through chapter two verse five as a backdrop, and let's just remember that um, that Paul has just come off of this this probably the most profound teaching about Jesus in verses fifteen to twenty three. You know, speaking of him as essentially um, the most supreme one, the essentially the apex of all creation. Everything centers around Jesus, not just our lives but creation itself. The ultimate reality is grounded and founded in Jesus. And then he goes on and he says in this that, that Adam went through last week with you, is that he not only holds all this creation together, but, but this Jesus has made us, who are sinful, pathetic, wretched creatures, he has made us holy and free from accusation. I mean, it gives a new perspective on the concept of good news, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, wow. I mean, when you grapple with the, the magnitude of that, an amazing, amazing thing that Jesus has done. Now, look at what he says in light of what he said um, in the previous section. Look what he says here. Now, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. You can see in his language here. He is committed to Jesus calling on his life, that he would give his life for the church and that he would suffer for the church. It's exactly what What uh, was told to Ananias back in chapter 9? I had become its servant, the servant servant to the church, the body of Jesus, by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness, the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're going to come back to that in a minute. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all, get this, with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. See in his language there? Jesus working in me. It's his energy that's doing this, not me. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and all those in Laodicea. And for all those who have not met me personally, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell this, I tell you this so that no one, no one, no one of you may be deceived by fine sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. This is a really beautiful passage, isn't it? I mean, when you take time and really Look at what he's saying here. Look into Paul's heart here. It's a very beautiful picture of of, of the individual that he was. Um, this is a man that's been so deeply impacted by Jesus. So deeply impacted by Jesus that his whole life has been reoriented around him. And he is passionate about fulfilling and living out the calling that Jesus has placed on his life. And specifically, what is that calling that he gave Paul? To take the good news of Jesus to not just the people of Israel, but to the Gentiles. And that's what he's been doing as he writes this letter in Colossae. It's very intentional. This is a part of his calling to be able to reach out to the Gentiles. We're in the middle of this series this morning, as, as we're well aware of Christ, the center of it all. And this morning, the title of the message that we're going to look at is Jesus, the center of us, Jesus, the center of us. Whereas there's a lot of things that we could look at from this passage, what I'd like to do is go back to verses 25 to 27 and give really special emphasis to verse 27. Um, look, look back, and I think it's yeah, it's on the screen. To look back at this, at this, these uh, three verses. It says I've become a servant by the commission God gave me. Look at this to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul says here that he's been commissioned to present the word of God in its fullness. And that really begs the question, what is the word of God in its fullness? What is this? Well, first of all, if you understand Paul, Paul's main body of understanding and teaching in that day and age was when we talked about the word of God, he recognized and understood that Jesus was the embodiment of the word of God. But from a textual orientation, he would have very clearly understood that the Hebrew scriptures is what he's Clearly alluding to here that this is God's Word. These are the, this is the Word of God here. You know, the New Testament in our form today wasn't, you know, written and packaged the way that it is now when Paul's writing this. I mean, he's still, the letters of the New Testament are still being written here. So it's not like he had, he's looking at this and he's saying, this is the Word of God, everything that we have, Old and New Testaments. He's referring specifically to the manifestation of Jesus and to the Hebrew Scriptures. So he's building on this established Word of God primarily in the Hebrew Scriptures, and he's basically saying, that these scriptures find their fullness and their completeness in something else. The, the Hebrew scriptures are pointing us to something new, something fuller, something more complete than what has been known in the past. And this has been seen as a mystery. What is this? He's referring to this as a mystery that's now been made known. So what is this mystery, this fullness of uh, the word of God and its fullness? And I think it really boils down to two issues here. If you look at this, at this passage The first is that the good news of Jesus is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. And this is a beautiful thing, because this is what allows many of us in this room to even be here and gather here. Because if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. If you don't have Jewish heritage and Jewish upbringing, you're a Gentile. And so this message of Jesus went beyond the national lines of Judaism. And it said, no, this is inclusive to all people. And so you and I have the blessing and the privilege and the honor to be able to worship Jesus, to know Jesus to love and to live for, live for Jesus because of this primary mystery, mysterious teaching, which is that the good news of Jesus is for all people. That's one of the beautiful aspects, that the door has been opened to all people to be forgiven. The second aspect of this mystery, which is we're going to spend the bulk of the rest of our time this morning, is that the good news of Jesus is really Jesus in us. Look at, look at this, this last line here. Where he says to them, God has made chosen to make known among the Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery. So see the Gentile, part of the mystery is that the Gentiles are included in this. Well, what are they included in? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Therefore, our title for the message this morning, Jesus at the center of us. Let's talk a little bit more about what this means. Christ in you. I think that's the essentially if you want to look at use the terminology we used earlier, the apex of what this passage is centered around is this concept of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so what I want to do this morning is take the main take the mystery, I guess to use the same word that's being used here, take the mystery out of the main point of the message today. And here it is. You can advance the slide on this one for me. Jesus intends to live in and through us for two purposes that we're identifying today. To give us hope and to make himself known to the world exponentially. Jesus intends to live in us, to give us hope, and to live through us in order to make himself known to the world exponentially. I think this is ultimately what Paul's trying to communicate here when he talks about this concept of Christ in you, the hope of glory. There, there's something very significant to what's going on here. And, and my, as I was reading through this this week um, and, and processing this, it gave me a much bigger pers- a picture of, of this concept of salvation, this concept of experiencing Jesus. You know, oftentimes we equate a relationship to Jesus with a, with a, uh, um, a linear prayer that we've prayed. And we've cognitively assented to certain doctrinal truths. And so we've said, yes, I want to I want to accept Jesus and I want to, I want him to forgive me. And I ask him to come and to live in my heart and to be with me. And and we we cognitively think that and we say, good, we did that. OK, so now we just need to live a life that's honoring to him and and do the right things. And Jesus, we know Jesus wants to work in and through us. And so yeah, But, but we, we, we don't really transition into the full impact of what this statement really is, that that our salvation experience, our understanding of Jesus, goes beyond this concept of just cognitively assenting to certain things or praying a prayer. It's a, mat- it's a matter of, of Jesus' life being manifested and, and moving through us. That's the beauty of this passage. It, our salvation experience is not that we are bystanders just kind of sitting down and trying to figure out what to do next. No, Jesus. the beauty of this passage is that Jesus says... I am now working and moving through you. You are a conduit of me. That's the beauty of what the gospel is all about. The fact that Jesus intends to live in and through us and to give us hope and to make himself known to the world is also seen in his own words. Now, don't take my word for this. Let's look at another. I said we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture here. So let's look at some more passages here. We're going to put on the screen. Look at what Jesus says about this. John chapter 17, he's praying here. He's just he's praying to God, his father, and he just got done praying for his disciples. Okay, and now he transitions to another aspect of prayer. Look at what he says here. My prayer is not for them alone, referring to his disciples. But he says, I also pray for those who will believe in me because of their message. That's you and I here this morning. Jesus is praying for us today based on what he says here. Look at what he says. He's praying that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Look at this. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. May they also be unified with us so that the world may know because of them who you are and that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. This is crazy language. I mean, Jesus is speaking, I mean, in his prayer here, uh, it almost feels a little uncomfortable. Like this, this concept of him being in us and working and moving through us. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world goes on and he says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. Verse 26, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Look at Matthew chapter 28, famous passage, Great Commission passage, Jesus came to them. All authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Great commission that he's given us to go and to be salt and light, to to advance the message of Jesus in the world that we live in. But a lot of times we leave out the last sentence here. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is with us doing this through us. It is not based on our own efforts. It's not based on our own personalities. It's not based on our own passions. Jesus says, I am working and moving through you to get this done. John fourteen twenty six. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. Jesus, before he left in another passage, said, it's better that I go, because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit won't come. Jesus knew that the Holy Spirit moving and empowering every believer was really Jesus' manifestation of himself in and through us to get the work done. That was the beauty of the Holy Spirit coming, the third person of the Trinity, that now God resides within us. Jesus resides in us by his Spirit in order to make these advancements in the kingdom. Therefore... As we can see, back to our main point, Jesus intends to live in and through us to give us hope and to make himself known to the world exponentially. Jesus is the center. He must be the center. He is at the center of us as a follower of him. We were not created to be at the center. We were created to be filled by another to be at the center of our lives. If you think about it, who is typically rooted and situated at the core and the center of our lives? Typically, it's Me. It's ourselves. We're the ones that typically orient ourselves around everything that we do is oriented around ourselves. God gave a very important command to the exiles in Egypt when they were in the desert. Um, Let's look at this, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. You know, um, what had happened was that they had just, God had just brought the, the Israelites out of Egypt, out of that land of oppression. And um, and what he says here, and you can advance the slide on this one as well. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Just a pretty defining point. It's like God said, I did this. Therefore, you will have no other gods before me. I've essentially proven myself and shown you that I am the most powerful reality that is ever known. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. But most notably in our culture... Or in the culture of the day, in that day, a God would be physically represented by a form or an image. Therefore, we see command number two in verses eight and nine. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or on earth beneath uh, or or beneath it or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So in the context of the culture they would isolate or they would focus on an external god and they would create an idol to worship it and they'd actually bow down to it and pray to it and offer sacrifices to it now in our culture today we don't really do that per se and that and that you know we don't typically make things and bow down to them and pray and offer incense and offerings to them but this this these commands are not unknown to us um, the uh today we we operate typically as our own gods our own self-consumptive gods we, we base things about what we want, what we want to do. We worship our, ourselves, our wants, our needs, our pleasures. And we see this in our current idols, don't we? If we look at the things that we value, we look at um, our things, the things that we have, how we strive for bigger and better, more expensive cars, how we strive for bigger and better, more expensive, right? Zip code homes um our, our toys, etc. Just the, 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 it's not to say that that things are bad. But it's the sense that as people, what we do is we can a lot of times see what's important to us by looking at what we have and what we have accumulated. And so we may not bow down and worship and burn incense to a to an idol, per se, but we certainly find time to bow down and worship and burn incense to the things that we have, which shows where our hearts are. Is God really at the center? I want to... Conclude this this morning with a little illustration here on uh, with this plant and. um, This image of a of a clay pot or not, it's not actually a clay pot, it's a plastic pot might help when I'm dripping. All right, I'm sorry, whoever's going to sit on this seat. Um, So I've got two pots up here. And I think this will help us really understand uh, this concept of Jesus needing to be the center let me uh, let me stand back so that I can so you can see this. Um, our bodies and our lives could essentially be represented by this pot, this empty pot that's up here. And we were essentially created as an empty pot, but our creative intent, was to be filled with true life and true beauty within us. So that this life can be seen and not the pot. The point is what's in the pot. Um, When you see this pot, this one over here on the right side, on my right, you don't focus on the pot itself, do you? You focus on what's in the pot. Whereas this one here, it's all about the pot. And it's pretty darn empty, isn't it? Like boring. Well, who wants to look at this? This is a good image, I think, of our purpose in life. The flower in this pot doesn't exist for the purpose of the pot. The pot exists for the purpose of the flower. That's why the pot was created. But the pot is not insignificant. Without the pot... The flower cannot be seen and cannot show itself to the world the way that it's intended to. Jesus enlists us and uses us significantly to partner with him in true life. Once again, our main point this morning, Jesus intends to live in and through us to give us hope and to make himself known to the world exponentially. Jesus intends for us to continue his mission. When people see us, they should see, not see us, but they should see Jesus. Not us, but Jesus. People don't say, wow, nice pot. They say, wow, that's a beautiful flower. So what? How does this apply? What do we do with this this morning? Christ in you the hope of glory. That's the focus, has been the focus in this passage, that little segment, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus intends to live in and through us to give us hope and to make himself known to the world exponentially. There's something about Jesus and the beauty of Jesus being at the center of us. There's something about that that is incredibly hopeful and incredibly purposeful. And so I want to conclude with two questions. Are you hopeful for your future? Are you optimistic that Jesus will continue to work in you and grow in you to love and to know him more? He is in you. He is living in and through you for these two purposes. To give you hope. You have meaning. You have purpose. You you are a pot that was intended to be filled by him so that he can shine. That should bring us hope. Two, are you ready to make Jesus known to the world? Are you ready to let or to be the pot that lets him shine? Are you does this image help you and help I know it helps me to think life is not about me. Life is about making Jesus seen, making Jesus known through me. That's the point. So what can we do? What can you do this week? I can't answer this question for you. This is a question for you. Think about—I don't know—go out to Orchard Supply and spend. How much should we spend on those? Like three dollars for the pot, and I don't know another five, six bucks, ten dollars, and you can have a nice pot like this, and you can put a flower in it. But take, go and buy one, and just put it somewhere visible in your house. I don't, out on your doorstep or somewhere, and let it be a visual reminder of what. Our purpose and our goal in life is that Jesus intends to live and move through you. And so, how do we respond to that? How do you feel that God is asking you to make Himself known? And I've put on here a couple. Do do you need to think about a barbecue with some neighbors? Just how how can I represent Jesus well to my neighbors? Maybe inviting somebody at work to go to lunch. Just, I mean, don't feel like you got to pack a you know a gospel track in your pocket or something or just invite a friend at work to go to lunch with you. Just get to know them. Praying the whole time that Jesus would shine through you to this person. And that if as opportunities open, as a friendship develops, that the message of Jesus and the good news of Jesus can be a part of that relationship. We're going to close this morning, um, I think in an appropriate way, with, uh, with communion. And I'd like to ask the, the band to come back up. And I'll give you guys your your uh, stools back here. You probably need those. What's going to happen is we're going to take some time to um, have the the communion elements are going to be passed out, and essentially this is an opportunity. Uh, for those of us that, that, that call ourselves followers of Jesus, to participate in an act of remembrance. And there's nothing ultimately significant about the little cup of juice and the little wafer cracker that's there. I mean, Jesus basically, when he was talking about this, this, this thing called communion, or this idea of the Lord's Supper, was really gathered around a table with his, with his, uh, with his disciples. And he was using common elements of the day to communicate a very eternal message. And he was essentially saying to them, as often as you eat and drink, remember me. Recognize that I am true life. That my body was shed and broken for you and my blood was spilled for you so that you could have true life. So that in essence, he can bloom through us. That he can shine through us. And so I'm going to have the, the ushers come forward with the elements. What they're going to do is we're going to have some music. They'll pass the elements. Please hold on to them. Don't, don't take them yet. And then I'll come back up after everything has been passed and, and just lead us through a time of, of taking the elements.